Welcome, fellow traveler. You are now listening to the Tent Theology Podcast. Each week, we have a tent talk where we pursue the renewing of the Christian social and political imagination. Right, here we go with part two of our listener questions episodes following the Followers of the Way season one that we did. And I have been collecting some emails and questions coming in, and I've been dealing with them as we went along. But there are some other ones that have come up even in the last few days. And so I thought this is a good place to talk about them now. Ross L. writes, Hi, tent heads. Question for the group. Why is the modern church of any stripe so bad at discussing the issues you are presenting? And here, Ross L. is specifically talking about the powers and principalities episode that we did. I've been through a lot of denominations, and they all go over scripture with a fine-tooth comb, but rarely will they touch on subjects or issues that cannot be tied to a specific verse. Is this all the fault of Wayne Grudem? What's going on here? (laughs) Yes, uh, Wayne Grudem is definitely responsible for a lot of bad theology, but I don't want to turn this into the Wayne Grudem hour, so we'll just pass quickly over him. But the other question, though, of like, Ross, you ask, why have I never heard this before? I have to say, this is one of the most common questions I get. When I teach on the Gospel of Mark, or when I do the Powers and Principalities, or even the Romans 13, I often will get asked, like, why haven't I ever heard this before? I'm not sure if there's an actual, very clear answer to that. I mean, I thought about it, and I have some observations. But I don't think anything I say is going to be the, uh, the absolute watertight knockdown answer. I would say, first of all, that I did, I'm not inventing this stuff. Like, there's a lot of things that... Oh, let me give you an example. So Tom Wright, N.T. Wright, wrote a, a really good book called Surprised by Hope, which was all about addressing the issue of the, the Christian hope is not actually that when you, you go to heaven when you die. The uh, Christian hope drawn from the scriptures it has to do with the uh, recreation of the new heaven and the new earth and the resurrection of the body and... He's dealing with all of these sorts of topics. And a lot of my intelligent but theologically uneducated friends were they having their minds blown. I remember a lot of people were reading this book and were like, I've never heard this before. This is amazing stuff. And I'm really glad they had that. And it is amazing stuff. But I was struck by how much they thought this was new to them, whereas I'd been swimming in those waters for a long time. I'd been writing undergraduate essays on this kind of thing. I'd been in academic theological circles. I'd been reading books about this. Like, none of it was new to me. And there does seem to be a, a real gap between what, I guess we'd call them theologically educated people, know about Christianity, and what your average Christian knows And again, this isn't about intelligence. I really need to keep stressing this. There does seem to be a gap. Like our, we don't have church cultures that value or even access church history, serious Bible, biblical studies, serious theological uh, or sociological or anthropological views of religion or spirituality or Christianity. There does seem to be a real culture. So from, a, from the churchy point of view, we have a culture that is quite fiercely anti-intellectual in some circles or benignly anti-intellectual. A real common complaint is you'll lose your faith if you go to study theology. And that, that's a complaint that one hears all the time. Or you'll, we have a cultures in churches that are, um, we value as a society individual experience to such an extent that we have a a vision of individual freedom is so important to us. It's the ultimate horizon, (laughs) right? Our horizon begins and ends with the individual. And when you have a world in which that is true, then you have a world in which every single person's opinion is equally valid. And we denigrate expertise. We denigrate people who committed themselves to a certain point of view or a certain uh, area of research. And so it's a, it's an anti-intellectualism, or it's it's an attempt to have everybody's opinion is equally valid. And uh, we see this obviously with science and medicine. We see this in politics and in international affairs. 
And uh, we see this in theology, absolutely. And you do see that one person's opinion is considered to be equally valid as somebody who has spent a lifetime studying or researching or living with Hebrew scriptures or the New Testament or the Trinitarian formulations. And the church does not tend to offer much of an alternative to that sort of culture. So we definitely see it. Anybody who's worked, any believer who is also a theologian or worked in these fields will tell you that this is an experience that they have. That the local church, the local worshipping communities that they're a part of, usually do not have any awareness or real value for what it is that theologians are doing. And then, of course, we have it on the other side, that the theological world has retreated into little bunkers. The theological world itself is rarely very good at or even really wants to engage with the local church. And I don't know where this started. I don't know if it was academic theology that started by being intellectually proud and arrogant and elitist, and then the local church just caught the message. Or if it was the other way around, if the local church was unable to foster an environment of serious intellectual engagement or serious reflection. And so anybody who inclines to that is not going to find a home in their local church. And so they've gravitated towards the university. So I don't know who started this, but it's definitely a divide that exists. And to be honest, this is one of the reasons why I even started Tent Theology in the first place. I was tired of doing serious Bible study and theology and reflection in university environments, apart from the local worshipping communities. And I thought that, well, local worshipping communities aren't coming to me, so maybe I should go to them. But more specifically, Ross asks about these denominations that love scripture with a fine-tooth comb, but then they don't touch on any of these issues. Well, this is back to my original argument, is that you see what you want to see, And if you approach the scriptures, now again, remember, just because lots of people are quoting the Bible all the time really doesn't mean that they have a very high value or high awareness of what's in the Bible. And I'm afraid this is what we see very often, is that you can read popular Christian paperbacks that are chock full of Bible verses, but contain almost no actual biblical knowledge of any value because the Bible is effectively being treated like a magic book that you just open up and um, you can find verses to justify or to back up any position that you want. And one finds that all the time in popular Christian paperbacks and in denominations that claim to love the Bible and will talk loudly and sentimentally about the Bible, but then will show almost no... Uh, awareness of the original context, no indication that they've engaged with the original languages, and no contact at all with scholars, biblical scholars, people who have been reflecting on this for a long time. Uh, And often you will find in these same books open mockery of biblical scholars and of experts. And one of the reasons why some of these denominations don't reveal this stuff or don't find it in their scriptures is because they don't want to see it. Is because you show me a church culture that talks loudly and long about how much it loves the Bible, and I'll show you a church culture which nine times out of ten is also utterly addicted to patriotism and militarism and uh, conservative family values and maintaining capitalism. Do you know what I mean? The, the kinds of churches that really like to claim to be Bible-believing are also the kinds of churches that imagine the life of the Christian to be equivalent to the life of the patriot citizen. And that happens a lot all over the place. And if you don't want to see a challenge to your prior commitment to patriotic citizenship, then you won't see it. And if you really want to find law and order and nationalism and tribalism being affirmed, well, you can find that in the Bible. Of course you can. You can't find that in a Bible that is being read through a Christological hermeneutic, through the lens of Christ, but you certainly can find it in the Bible. The words of the Bible will contain all sorts of justification for all sorts of horrible things. And that's a matter for another podcast, and I'm sure we'll talk about it later, about the Christological hermeneutic. 
But I think that would be some answer to you, Ross, is that these things are not new. Nothing I'm saying is unique. I am absolutely building on the work of other people. And a lot of those people have been going for a long time. <laughs> There's the Anabaptists in the Protestant Reformation or the early church fathers or the New Testament itself. I mean, you can go really far back and you can find this material and you can find groups of people who are living this way. They are living in a, a way of they see the kingdom of Jesus as a, as a movement, a social movement, which has actual practical public implications. They're, they're all over the place, those kind of people. And I've given, uh, I gave a whole episode where I just talked about different voices that one could turn to even today. So it's not, we're not alone, but we are a minority and we are largely ignored. And that's because we live in cultures which largely ignore uh, experts and, and academics for various reasons, some better than others. And we're also part of a culture which has not got its, it hasn't got the will. It, it's a matter of the heart. Churches and a lot of Christians do not want to see this stuff. And so they don't. It's not because it's not there or it's hidden. A lot of the things that we're pointing out, for example, a classic example is the Jesus life as a nonviolent life. You ask any, any atheist or Buddhist or secular humanist or a Muslim, you ask them, what does Jesus think you should do with your enemies? And they will tell you right away, oh, Jesus said you're supposed to love them. You ask anybody who's not, who doesn't call themselves a Christian, what do you think Jesus thought about violence? And they'll, they'll tell you he was some sort of nonviolent pacifist, right? It's only Christians of a certain stripe who will think that, uh, that think hearing about Jesus being nonviolent is news to them. And that to me is part of the whole issue <laughs> is that these Christians are born into cultures which have done a really good job of ignoring the most basic and obvious things about Jesus and Christianity and have instead reconfigured and built it in the shape of the patriot and the nationalist. And so these are the sorts of things that one sees all the time. And it's not really a matter of information. It's not a secret. The non-violent life and trying to organize yourself non-violently is one of the main points of the entire New Testament is one of the main points of Paul's letters, trying to get people to consider others better than themselves and how to resolve conflict. And Jesus's whole teaching is aimed towards these kinds of things. So this isn't a secret. It doesn't require a PhD in theology. But we're not talking about knowledge here. We're talking about the heart. We're talking about the affections and it's those things, the affections of allegiance, the affections to your tribal homeland, the affections to your patriotic allegiances, those are the things that we are told and that we tell our children are the most important. And so if you go into the Bible already thinking that that's the most important, then you will not see the other stuff. As Jesus says, itching ears will hear what they want to hear. Which leads to a good question that came from Ben F. Ben writes, One question I was wondering was whether at any stage you might address the growing issue of over-identification with left-wing politics on behalf of the millennials, etc. I have an ever-increasing amount of conversations with my own age group in the UK, where phrases like, well, I think there's no denying that Jesus was a socialist, or there can't really be any debate that Jesus was a red, I think about all the things he said to the poor and what the apostle said about sharing everything in common. Jesus was the original commie. And Ben goes on to say, my generation in the UK has less of a danger of co-opting Jesus into their right-wing agenda and rather has more of a danger of co-opting Jesus into their left-wing agenda, both of which are obviously as dangerous as each other and both of which come as a result of a limited political imagination. And then Ben goes on to say he's not trying to do false equivalents here. He's aware of that is a problem. Just to be clear, he also says, I have historically been far more sympathetic to left-wing politics myself and voted Labour in the last elections. Labour, for our US listeners, is the uh, left-wing British par uh, parliamentary party. My issue is not with wanting to in any way ask you to be biased towards fairness, but instead 
uh, is that the co-option, talk about the co-option of Jesus into any political ideology as being detrimental. So, Ben asks a really good question. Now, I have been, oh, how do I put this? I've deliberately not talked about the co-option of Jesus by the left wing. And I've done that deliberately, not because it doesn't happen, because it obviously does. But just frankly, because the, right now, in the world we live in right now, <laughs> the, the danger of Jesus being co-opted by the left wing is so statistically minor. It is so small. When we get a world in which there are multiple left-wing media news, media empires using the name of Jesus to promote socialism and communism. When we get a world where politicians will invoke the name of Jesus while rallying for left-wing causes. When we have multi-billion dollar, million pound institutions and NGOs that are set up precisely for the purpose of capturing the left-wing cause for Christ. When politicians can assume that, just assume that left-wing causes will garner them all the support from the evangelical crowd, that's when we might start to have a conversation about the co-opting of the left-wing imagination over the Christians, okay? And so I'm not going to say it's not possible, but I just don't see it happening right now. It is not the danger right now. And one difference I would say, obviously, Ben, I'm not going to disagree. Your experience is that amongst people your age, you say your generation, uh, that they just naturally assume Jesus was a commie or Jesus was a socialist. So obviously, Jesus was not a socialist. He was not a communist. All right. Obviously, there is, these are anachronistic economic things. And uh, Jesus was not involved in any domination power structures. He was not organizing himself in order to dominate his will over others. So any political system that results in domination, uh, in the killing of enemies, I mean, I, I don't think there's ever been a communist movement that hasn't involved the liquidation of human beings in order to dominate its agenda on the world. So obviously, Jesus was not a communist. And I would refer you to to Brad Jerzak in some of Brad's interviews in the previous weeks here, where he says things like, caring for the poor might look like a left-wing cause, but it's just a Christian cause. And caring for the unborn might look like a right-wing cause, but it's just a Christian cause. And concern about using war to solve your problems might look like some sort of hippie left-winger, but it, you're just a Christian. Like the, the following of Jesus's way just legitimately does not map onto the left-right spectrum. And in fact, the left-right spectrum is itself one of the domination systems that followers of Jesus need to be alert to. They're being locked into a certain form of life and they're being forced to identify on a certain spectrum of ideology, which itself is doing violence to them and to their, to our imagination. I'm not blind to the fact that Jesus can be co-opted into left-wing term, a vision. Of course he can. I just don't see it happening right now to anything like the extent that it's happening in the right and the right-wing imagination. And I, I really don't think anybody can challenge me on that because <laughs> to do so, they'd have to demonstrate an equal and opposite culture of the left, which is using the language of Jesus to get its aims done, which is definitely not happening, okay? I mean, if anything, the left is taking the name of God and Jesus out of things because they don't want to do their politics by invoking the name of God, which, frankly, I find more honest, just as an aside. <laughs> if, if you find a, 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 polit a political party which doesn't use the name of God, I find that a more honest and, and good position to be in than one that does use the name of God and then uses that name of God to pursue their overtly violent, greedy, racist, domination-type politics. Uh, I don't understand why anybody would prefer the name of God to be abused and profaned and taken in vain. What else do you think it means to take the name of the Lord in vain than to use the name of the Lord 
to endorse policies and inflame affections towards ends that have nothing to do with the with the Lord's life or words. I I honestly don't understand why anybody wouldn't be upset by that if they call themselves a follower of the way of Jesus. But we don't live in that world. We live in the world in which it's conservatives and right-wingers and patriots and nationalists who use the name of the Lord and can get away with it and know that they can and do it on purpose. They don't even believe it. A lot of these people don't believe any of it, but they know that those words get the results they want from their political base. So what do you do, though, with the other side? Because there are people who think, oh, obviously Jesus was a commie. One of the reasons I'm less worried about those groups is that look at the ends that they're moving towards. So people who assume, young people who assume that Jesus was a socialist, at least, at the very least, they're looking at something that Jesus actually was, which was he cared for the poor, right? At least they're looking to how the Acts of the Apostles describes the earliest Christian church with its approach to economics and to money. I mean, yes, you are mistaken if you read absolute communism and hardcore socialism into those texts. Of course you are mistaken. But at least you're taking the data for what it is. At least you're looking at the data. At least you're trying to extrapolate some sort of politics that moves in the trajectory that one finds in the original texts. And my complaint with the, with the more right-wing end of, of things, of the politics, is that they are they're ignoring the data to reach conclusions that are the exact opposite, like that are going in the trajectory away from Jesus and his movement. So one side, the left-wing side, is mistaken. They are mistaken. They are committing some sorts of errors of fact and theology. But they aren't leading to an end which is totally opposite and totally alien to the way of the earliest church. And I am also, Ben, as you rightly know, like you know this, you even mentioned it in your email to me, I am so allergic to both sides-isms. But what aboutism and both sideism? I just find so intellectually lazy that I'm really allergic to it. And there, the truth does not always lie in the middle. It's not actually true that, oh, they're all equally bad or they're all equally, all sides are equally wrong. That's not actually true. Both sideism is not a true way of looking at the world. If you said six million people were killed in the Holocaust, and I said zero people were killed in the Holocaust, the truth isn't that three million people were killed in the Holocaust. And likewise, I do find this attempt to say, well, I know that the right-wingers and the Trumpists are getting Jesus wrong, but so are the left-wingers and the Democrats. Or I know the Tories have got, got it mixed up with religion and Christianity, but so does the Labour Party. I just don't see that actually happening. It's more to do with who's going with the grain of the gospel story and who's going against the grain of the gospel story. And also, I don't think that the truth of Christianity is somewhere in the middle of the political spectrum either. It's not some sort of radical centrist, radical middle. The radical middle might be super useful if you are a politician. It might answer all sorts of political problems. But the way of Jesus is not on the political spectrum, including the radical middle. It's not on the left. It's not on the right. It's not in the middle. The way of Jesus doesn't match the politics uh, that we've invented, largely because the politics we've invented, right and left, are partisan politics. They are winner-takes-all politics. They are setting up the red team against the blue team or the left team against the right team. The underlying mode of activity is hyper-partisan tribalism. It's the same thing that we talk about with nationalism. It's the attitude of, I need to be with people who look like me and sound like me as much as possible. And only when I gather with those like me will we be able to concentrate enough power to ram our agenda through the system. And I feel like that is the real issue, or that is a huge issue. 
So if I'm around, which I am sometimes, around overtly left-wing Christians, and I do understand, Ben, what you mean. I do think there is a rising generation that has been so turned off by the co-option of the conservative ideal with Christianity that they're now naturally swinging to the left. I do think you're right. And when I'm around those groups and asked to speak to them, it more so than the, I'm not attacking their view of the poor or their attitude towards violent statecraft or something like that, uh, using violence to defend the state. I'm more concerned about that partisan nature of their politics than the idea that only voices who sound like us should be allowed to speak. Only people who look like us and sound like us as much as possible. Now, that's the sort of attitude that to me is distinctly un-Christian or un-Christ-like. And it doesn't actually have anything to do with the policies. It has more to do with, like I said, the mode or activity of our formation itself. So that's the sort of way I would talk to left-wing people. So any politics that requires the silencing of its enemies or its opponents, or that thinks in terms of winners and losers, or that thinks in terms of uh, getting one's, one's will through the system at the expense of other people's will. Now, those are pernicious and toxic ideas which the people of Christ have to be very aware of. And that really has nothing to do with the actual policies of the parties. It just has to do with the mode of operation of them. But this could be a connecting point between right-wing nationalism and left-wing, let's call it tribalism. So again, uh, Ben, you, you, you pointed out that you don't find amongst left-wingers that their problem is that they're overtly patriotic or nationalistic. No, that's probably true. But they are filled with an attitude that uh, we must silence voices or not allow voices that are disagreeing with us. There is that attitude. And so that would be where nationalism and left-wing tribalism share a common thread, which is to fiercely reject the other and the outsider and, and to see them as enemies that must be destroyed. Okay. Joe D. wrote to me a while ago, and Joe had a number of questions, some of which have to do with violence and the use of violence and justified use of war as well as questions about the uh, Old Testament passages, the violent retribution upon enemies in the Old Testament. These are all good questions, Joe, and all I will tell you is that they are part of the upcoming season two of Followers of the Way. So this is a good place to plug that. So keep subscribing, get other people to subscribe. Go to patreon.com and become a supporter if you can, so that we can continue to make this material freely available to anyone and so we do have some plans to make a season two of followers of the way and a lot of that will deal specifically with violence and some of these questions that you've asked about joe but joe also asked questions about participation in the political system so if if we know that both sides and there's the both sidesism again but if we don't see that a political party represents our hopes and dreams and ideals as followers of Christ. What extent can we participate in it? What should we compromise? What does that look like? And Joe's questions are very similar to other questions I had from Rich D, no relation. And Rich also talks about if the state, he refers to Max Weber, who was a famous sociologist, and Max Weber defines the state as owning the monopoly on the legitimate use of violence. If Christ is profoundly anti-violent, even to those who would attack him, what level of participation in an inherently violent institution would be acceptable? And both Joe and Rich are asking questions that, again, come up quite a lot, which is people hear like, yeah, okay, I get it. I get that uh, Jesus is not on the left and right spectrum. I get that killing your enemies is not an option. I get that not guarding and closely clutching your resources and only giving them to people who look like you as much as possible. I get that followers of Jesus don't do that. I get that we live a different political, social life. But we live in a world in which every four or five years, we are asked to vote. Or we live in a world in which people are civil servants, and they are mid-level bureaucrats. Or they find themselves in positions where they do have to make life and death decisions about enemies. 
Are we saying that followers of Christ can't be tax collectors, can't be presidents or prime ministers? Are we saying that followers of the way of Christ shouldn't vote for anyone who does vote for a warmongering nationalist president? What do we do about all this, right? I think that there is one thing to say about all this is that we do live, this is a really good example of what the fall might look like, what living in a fallen world might look like. And I have referred to this before, but I'll remind you again how Bonhoeffer, the German theologian who died at the hands of the Nazis, Bonhoeffer basically said, this is what original sin looks like. Original sin means you can live in a world in which no matter what you do, it's the wrong thing. It means we live in a world in which there are sometimes, and you'd be surprised how often, there are options which are all bad. And they all have to do with some form of corruption or co-option or extortion. There are things we live in in this world. We are born into a world in which no matter what we do, we have somehow inherited a system built on slavery or benefiting from war or benefiting from exploitation of the poor. These are non-options for us. So there's two things we could do about this. We could ignore that and blindly live as if none of those things are true, in which case we're living in a lie. Or we could dig our heels in and start to defend those things as actually good, which is what we're seeing a lot, especially from the the right-wing Republican Trump supporting group right now, that things that are patently evil are now being defended as good or they're finding ways to defend these things as good. Exploitation and war being two of the most obvious ones. And this is a problem, right? This is obviously a problem, but there is a difference between people who acknowledge that there is uh, a problem that they live in and people who either refuse to acknowledge it or actively defend it. So I think followers of Christ, we at the very least, we need to be aware that we live in a world in which we have inherited a world of exploitation and we're moving in that world. And then we can take some steps to dismantle it. There is a sense of the Christian political imagination is routinely local. There is a resolute smallness to the Christian politics. Now, I'm not saying that there's no such thing as large systematic solutions to big problems. I'm not saying that. But I am wanting us to pay attention to how many solutions to large problems actually reside in the local neighborhood. You can't do anything about global waste. You can do something about your waste of resources. You can't do anything about the specter of racism at a national scale. You can do something about your personal relationship with your neighbors. You almost certainly can't do anything about bribery and corruption in the legal system, but you yourself can refuse to participate in bribery or corruption. Wendell Berry, the American essayist and farmer from Kentucky, I really highly recommend his books, and he writes about this as well. Like He, he often gets accused of being isolationist and having nothing to do with large problems. He gets accused of opting out. Now, Wendell Berry is a deeply Christian man, and his imagination is very much formed on an incarnational way. And his response to these global problems is not to join mass movements and marches and political rallies. His response to these things, and he's here specifically thinking about the waste, uh, materialistic waste and excesses and the way that we completely burn our fossil fuels at an excessive rate or that we produce terrible food with negative nutritional value and we mass produce it. Now, his solution to some of these large intractable problems is he says, I can't really do anything about the oil companies or the food mega conglomeration food companies. I can't do anything about them. But what I can do is I can, in my small way, stop providing a market for those people. These people are only making this stuff because consumers want to consume it. So I will just stop being a consumer. 
And his solution to these problems is to stop feeding it, to stop being part of it. And then he seeks to awaken the imagination of other people around him. And he's trying to say, well, what if we painted a picture where the local networks of people producing goods and food, which is then sold and used locally, where people know each other's neighbors or they buy goods and services from people they actually know and not from faceless corporations. What if we could paint that picture that was so appealing that people would want to do it or they would see the benefit of it? And what if I myself and my friends who agree with me started doing it anyway? We could change the world or we could at least change our part of the world to which we have responsibility for, even if no laws of the land ever get changed. Even if there's nothing on the books that takes apart the mega conglomeration corporate environments and nothing on the books changes the way oil is consumed. But at least in our part of the world, we are doing the right thing for the right reasons. And that something can be good and right to do even if it is not legal or illegal. That the legality and the structure, the legal structure of the thing actually has nothing to do with whether it's good or bad. And someone like a Wendell Berry says, look, my moral compass is not based on politics. It's not based on what the state is currently doing or not doing. It's not based on what the market is doing or not doing. My moral compass, my sense of good and bad or good and evil does not come from my sense of possible and impossible or legal and illegal. My sense of goodness is not based on what's popular or unpopular or what leads to prosperity or not. These are not the measure of all goodness. And when it really comes down to it, the measure of all goodness is the incarnation. And the incarnation was not an abstract, multifaceted, multi-level, multi-generational web of information and ideas and legal ideas and money. The incarnation was a person being embedded into the local environment and having relationships with the people in front of him. And there's something there about the trajectory of the Christian imagination, which is totally socially engaged. It just refuses the lure or the temptation to think that social engagement must be national, high-level, multifaceted engagement. It actually could just be simple, door-to-door, face-to-face. And then, if there is a calling for that. There are times when multifaceted solutions are needed, of course. But the Christian or the one who's following Jesus, who is already embedded in her local environment, who actually knows people. I mean, it's a famous, there was a famous bishop who said, look, you think that you, Christian, you think that you should care for the poor. Yeah? Name them. Can you name any poor people? (laughs) I don't care if you say you care for the poor. If you don't know any, then you don't care for them. There's something really useful and Christ-like about actually knowing the people that you're supposed to be caring for and loving. And that's part of the trajectory of the Christian imagination is to resolutely go small, to go local, which is then part of what you bring to the table when you are asked to be a part of large-scale solutions. The, The Christian is solving problems. A tier fund is a good example of this, the NGO. And we had Joanne Green come on the, the show of, oh, a few weeks ago, and she's a policy director for tier fund. And tier fund is one of these large Christian NGOs, which one of its attempts to solving large problems is to be always rooted in local communities, is to always be finding local networks and solutions on the ground to then tackle large issues without becoming abstract. And an advantage of being connected to actual human beings around you and knowing that you are, to being rooted in in your locality. This isn't the same as being nationalistic or patriotic, by the way. And I am going to talk about this also in a future episode. But loving your neighbor is different than loving the nation. Because my neighbor might not share any of my national characteristics. And they're still my neighbor. The person whose needs I've become aware of might not tick any of the boxes when it comes to my patriotic allegiance. We might not share any of those things, and yet their needs 
are something I'm aware of, and now they are my neighbor, and I am to love them. And in fact, it has nothing to do with their national identity. So when I say being rooted in your locality and loving your neighbor, I don't then also affirm nationalism. And we are going to talk about this in a little bit. But what we're doing is we avoid abstractions. And by being rooted in your particular time and place with particular people whose names you know, that also helps orient us with a moral compass that when we do get involved in party politics or in government, which sometimes we do and sometimes we have to, it means that you can negotiate that space and move through those spaces without becoming disoriented or corrupted because your moral compass is not coming from your partisan loyalty, for example. It's not coming from how this will help you succeed to rise through the ranks of the Labour Party or the Tory Party or the Republicans, the Democrats. What you are doing is you are engaging with party politics, fully aware that party politics is a grubby abstraction from reality. And you are fully aware that it is a bad tool. It's a faulty tool. And you refuse to worship that tool. You refuse to think that your membership of the Republican Party or the Democrat Party or the Labour Party or whatever is itself a source of truth and goodness and light and beauty. You recognize it for what it is, which is a temporary, not very well put together, not very efficient tool for dealing with abstract and national problems. And if it is your calling to be a part of it, or if you do find that you have to be a part of it, then you can. And you look at the way the earliest church dealt with things like being corrupted by the world. And in fact, there was quite a lot of evidence of Christians knowing that the systems they were part of were evil. So a classic example would be paying taxes to Caesar in Romans 13. And also paying taxes to Caesar when Jesus is asked, should we pay the tax? In both of those occasions, everybody involved knows full well that the money is going towards an oppressive regime. In Jesus's case, the money was going towards Caesar, who was using the tax as a way to racially insult the Jews and to keep the oppression of the Jews going. In Paul's case, in Romans 13, the tax is going towards Well, one of the things it's going towards is paying for his own imprisonment. When he writes Romans 13, he himself is under chains. And he still thinks that we should pay taxes to Caesar. And it's like a limited form of engagement with government, fully aware that this money is not necessarily going to be used for anything good. And yet, it's obvious that the earliest Christian imagination didn't have a problem with that form of engagement. There seems to be, it's gray. It's a gray area. I'll be honest with that. But where they decided was, it's okay to give money and it's okay to give honor. That's one of the things Paul thought was okay. It's okay to give honor. It's okay to give money. But they did draw a line. They didn't give to Caesar everything that Caesar asked for. They only gave to Caesar what they thought he was owed. And they thought he was owed a bit of money and a bit of honor and that they could do that without breaking their conscience. They didn't think that they should be involved in vengeance sword-wielding activity. If you go read Romans 12 and compare that to Romans 13, you'll see that Paul says, do not take revenge to the believers. And then in Romans 13, he says, that's for the government to do. And then later in Romans 13, 8 and 9, he says, do not give to Caesar anything that will break the law of love that will break the law of love of neighbor. And so there is definitely a line that one can cross in one's participation with government. And Paul and Jesus seem to say, you can give honor, you can give respect, and you can give taxes. That's fine. But don't kill for your government. And don't die for your government. That's taking things too far. And so I do think that there are some jobs, for example, that a follower of Jesus would have a very hard time doing if that follower of Jesus was in government. There are some jobs which require you to intentionally use lethal violence on your enemies. And I can't imagine that a follower of Jesus would be able to do that job very well. 
I can't imagine that the follower of Jesus would do a job very well that requires her or his ultimate allegiance to the nation. If the nation is happy to have you, if the government says, we're happy to work with you, even though we know that you might disobey us when the time comes to kill our enemies, well, that's fine. That's the government. That's on the government to hire you if they know full well what they're getting. So that's one of my answers to this is that we are embedded through the system like yeast through, through dough, says Jesus. Like a seed scattered amongst the ground, the kingdom is sprouting up everywhere. It doesn't mean that, it might just mean that the nation or the government gets to choose whether it wants us or not. Maybe we don't even have to choose. There were some examples of the earliest Christians who were in the army. So Christians in the Roman army, people who got converted while they were soldiers. And we actually have record of these people that their generals and their officers were writing to each other about these Christians in the army because they were saying, what do we do? These Christians are, they're keeping the peace and they are um, obeying orders, except they won't kill. So they'll do all the army stuff that we ask them to do, except kill. So what do we do with them? And this was a problem. They had them kind of in the kitchen, peeling potatoes sort of thing. And it's, it's an interesting aspect, isn't it? It's like, can you be a soldier and be a follower of Christ? Well, yeah. You can be, a, if you are part of an army that says, soldier, it's okay if you don't kill our enemies when we tell you to, because we know that you serve a different Lord. If the army's willing to hire you to do that, then you should be a soldier. But if you're part of an organization that won't let you put your allegiance to Jesus above the allegiance to the land, well, then you're going to have a difficult time being in that job. And there are some jobs that are more compromising than others. And the earliest Christians and the New Testament doesn't have some illusion that we live in a world untainted from corruption. Original sin means everything you do is somehow wrong. <laughs> and so the goal is not to live in some azure isolation of righteous purity. The goal, much like uh, the, the, the sacrifice of uh, eating meat sacrificed to idols in uh, 1 Corinthians and also in Romans, the issue of Christians whose conscience was harmed eating food that was sacrificed to idols. And Paul says, look, the stronger Christian, you can do it. If your conscience is strong, you should, be, you should do this because Jesus is Lord of all. But there's a weaker brother whose conscience is harmed by this practice of participating in the marketplace and in the hospitality and in the pagan religious festivals. And so we should refrain from doing that if it's going to hurt their conscience. But you see in that story of the food sacrifice to idols, you see that there is a, a sense that the stronger brother actually does participate in things that the stronger brother knows is not, is corrupt. But they're allowed to do it anyway. And I don't think there's this sense that the stronger brother, the one that Paul says is right, he doesn't say stronger brothers are the ones who completely remove themselves from all taint of impurity. He actually says that's the weaker brother. That's what they do. So there isn't a sense here that early Christians thought that they could be righteously removed from the world. But what they were was moving in confidence through the system, uh, able to participate in the system, knowing that the system was wrong. And I think that might be the big difference. And now it's up to the system to reject you rather than you reject the system, if that makes sense. Because the Christian has their moral compass so firmly attuned that they know what's right or wrong, regardless of what the system says. And so they're able to just do what they want to do. And the system now gets to choose whether it wants to accept the follower of Jesus or not. And sometimes it might accept you, and sometimes it might reject you. And that seems to be the situation we're in now with our conscientious objectors. The ones who say, we aren't going to kill our enemies in the name of the state. All right, state, over to you. What are you going to do about it now? The state has a choice. The state can choose to let these conscientious objectors thrive. Or the state can choose to execute and imprison the conscientious objectors. 
which is what it usually does. But the conscientious objectors themselves are not the ones agitating to overthrow the state. They are in a weird way, this is another example of submission with disobedience. When you submit to the state, you are recognizing its authority and you are empowering the system or the state to make a choice what to do with you. So in a way, you are submitting to it while disobeying it, but you are recognizing its existence, and then you are empowering it to say, okay, now what are you going to do with us? And that would be one of the things that I would have to say if we are going to start to work in the system, work as civil servants, work as middle managers, work as bosses and leaders in these corporations and environments, that the jobs that explicitly require you to take a human life are going to be very difficult to do if you also want to be a follower of the way of Jesus. But the other sorts of jobs, which are more gray and more ambiguous, we are not alien to the world of the New Testament when we live in this world. The New Testament world also lived in a gray, ambiguous system, and it refused to get its moral right and wrong from that system but it lived in it anyway. And I think we could take our cues from people like modern-day conscientious objectors then, where we say to them, we say to the state, this is what I do, do you want me or not? And we let them choose. I'm going to stop here. You are now clearly getting into areas that we're going to have to devote more episodes to. And there's some other great questions coming in and already here that would be fun to deal with at a future date as well. So until then, I'm going to leave you now. Be at peace and go well. To further support the show, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media and learn more about Tenth Theology at www.tenththeology.com. Thank you for joining us and God bless everyone.